0: A couple of quick announcements and we will get into our study this morning um, Thursday April 29th to I guess that's Saturday may first uh, Saturday or Sunday whatever may first yeah Saturday um, we're going to be repaving the driveway and the parking lot area very excited about this you know these are the these are the uh, church expenses that thrill me the most so we're going to be having the work done over here and having that all sealed and and settle so just know if you come by here Thursday to Friday, uh, the gate will be closed out here and it'll be marked off because we can't drive on it for a couple of days, just heads up. Also, on May 1st, as if, you know, that's not enough, we're going to have a children's ministry training at the same time. So if you're coming for the children's ministry training, you're going to come in on the other driveway uh, in by the house and in that way, and there will be signs and directions, and a, a staff is all over that. So just so you know, children's ministry training, if you haven't signed up, if you'd like to be involved, please talk to Cam. You can sign up online. Child care is provided, and lunch will be served. See, those are two pluses right there. Our church website, this is the last thing, uh, our church website has been a bit funky lately. I don't know if you've noticed that. We did it just to see who was going there. But we worked out all the quirks and you should be able to access it now. It looks much more simplistic when you go there. It's just very basic. It it's gets you where you need to go. Easy to navigate, easy to find. So you can check that out and you get the latest teachings and stay up to date with what's happening. All right, that's out of the way. Numbers chapter 17. Let's continue. Numbers chapter 17. I will let you know that I am going on vacation like this afternoon. Um, taking three weeks that my family and I are gonna be gone and rest. We're not going to Africa yet, but um, we're taking a little break. And so heads up about that. Jake's gonna be teaching the next two Sundays, so you don't wanna miss that. And Les will be leading in teaching and teaching and prayer on Wednesday nights. And uh, on May 16th, I believe that's the right date, um, the third Sunday from now, three Sundays out, we're going to have a guest speaker, Wayne Taylor from Calvary Fellowship, uh, is going to be coming and speaking to us. If you haven't heard Wayne uh, teach, he's, he's a treasure. So it, it'll be a, a great morning, and I'll be back because I, I want to hear him. I want to hear, you know, Jake and Les too, but I will be online doing that. Numbers chapter 17, verse 12 Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, we perish, we are dying, we are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, must die. Are we to perish completely? I'm out of here. Have a great couple of weeks. No, I'm kidding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the uh, relevance of it, the immediacy of it, Lord. These words could be spoken by people in the world today. People searching, struggling, people lost. We're dying, we perish. What do we do? Lord, we we put masks on, we social distance, we we get vaccinations, We, we run around and we try to come up with an answer to extend our lives a few days, a few months, a few years. And there's so much fear. Father, I'm thankful that we can stand before you with only one fear, the fear of the Lord. And I pray that you will bring that true and deep encouragement to us this morning as you walk us through this truly remarkable passage of Scripture. It's remarkable, Lord, because you are, and because of what we see you intend. So, Lord, we ask you to teach our hearts, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you will be present and speaking to us, teaching us, leading us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may never heard of Newton Minow. Maybe some of you have, if you've been around a while. At the age of 35, he was made the chairman of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, by President John F. Kennedy. Uh, Newton Minow is responsible for the launching of PBS. He championed cable and satellite TV. He even secured the original funding for Sesame Street. So yeah, way to go. On May 9th, 1961, Newton Minow gave a nationally televised speech that still reverberates today among media elites and, and critics, standing there before the National Broadcasters Association, at a time when there were just three television networks for the country, three national television networks, Newton Minow said, when television is good, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. He said, I invite each of you to sit down in front of your television set when your station goes on the air. See, that, that's the way it used to work. When your station goes on the air and then stay there for the day. <clears throat> without book, without a magazine, without a newspaper, without a profit and loss sheet or a rating book to distract you, keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you, that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. Newton Minow's vast wasteland speech was so upsetting to TV producer Sherwood Schwartz that he named the shipwrecked boat of Gilligan's Island after him, the S.S. Minow. So now you know. Now you can lay that question to rest every time you watch Gilligan's Island. You know, as a, as a child of the 60s and 70s, I remember the fears And I remember hearing it from my parents, from other adults, that TV's going to rot your mind. And it's going to turn the nation into just that, a vast wasteland many people were concerned. And as kids were like, come on, come on, it's Gilligan's Island. That can't happen, right? We just let the world prove the prophetic word of Newton Minow. Amazing, a vast wasteland, he called it. Can that happen to a nation? It's a rhetorical question. You know the answer. And in a remarkably salient turn of events, the same people that God brought through the wilderness, that God grew into a mighty nation, were driven out of a country that became, for nearly 1,900 years, a vast wasteland. In fact... And I've shared some of this with you before in the book Innocence Abroad, Mark Twain's uh, book. He wrote back in 1869 of a journey he took to the land of Israel, the Holy Land, at that time still called Palestine, after the Roman derogatory term, Palestinia. And he said this We traverse some miles of desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds a silent, mournful expanse, wherein we only saw three persons. And he writes, gray lizards, those heirs of ruin, of sepulchres, of desolation, glided in and out among the rocks or lay still and sunned themselves, where prosperity has reigned and fallen, where glory has flamed and gone out, where the beauty has dwelt and passed away, where gladness was, And sorrow is where the pomp of life has been and silence and death brood in its high places. There this reptile makes his home and mocks at human vanity. That's how Mark Twain described once glorious Israel, then a vast wasteland, again, 1869. But it wasn't human vanity, as Twain implies, that took this people back into the wilderness of life. Isaiah tells us what it was. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 reads, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment or rag, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. uh, Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? We have been in the wilderness studying in Numbers how remarkable that mighty Zion itself became Bamidbar. The people brought through the wilderness were driven out to leave a wilderness. And you know what? From Newton Minnow back to Mark Twain, all the way back to Isaiah, the cause of a national or human desolation finally comes into focus. We can know what destroys a nation, and it's right here, verse 7. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. Numbers 16 and 17 We looked at chapters 15 and 16 Wednesday night, but 16 and 17 in particular are a three-part narrative of the disastrous defiance of the people against their own God-given authority. So that's what's really happening in 16 and 17. It's not rebellion so much against God. It's rebellion against those God has established as mediators, as intercessors for the people. Specifically, it's rebellion against the Aaronite priesthood against Aaron and and his sons, being in the positional role of leading. This morning we come to God's final word on their incessant insurrections and the answer to this. How does anyone, be it a person or a nation, how does anyone get out of the vast wasteland of sin and despair? And the answer is we've got to be led out. We must be led out as David wrote in Psalm 23:4, even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We need a rod. We need a staff to lead us out of the nation that's becoming a wasteland. And I'm not suggesting we hop on board a ship called the Mayflower and try to find a new land. There aren't any more. We need someone to lead us out of what is now a wasteland and into what will be a glorious kingdom. We need a rod. Not a Rod Gilmore, just a rod. <laughs> and our, our story this morning, it involves 13 Rods, watch this, verse one of chapter 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each father's household. 12 rods from all their leaders according to their father's households and you shall write each name on his rod and write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi for there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. And he says, verse four, you shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony, that is the ark. The the testimony is the Ten Commandments within the ark, so sometimes the ark itself was called the testimony, and where I meet with you. Throughout Numbers, now this is important to note, we're talking really about 13 rods this morning, because throughout the book of Numbers, Levi is separated from the 12 tribes as a 13th tribe. What was once the tribe of Joseph is now Ephraim and Manasseh, And so those two tribes with the rest of the tribes make up 12 if you take Levi out. If you put Levi in, there's 13. So what we're talking about here is 12 rods, one from each tribe, and a 13th rod from the tribe of Levi with Aaron's name inscribed as the leader of the Aaronite priesthood. And if you note, the last part of verse 6 says, 12 rods with the rod of Aaron among their rods. And so the implication there in the Hebrew is that there are the 12 rods and you put Aaron's rod with theirs. That would make a total of 13. Not so important, but just so you understand what's going on. The word rod is interesting here. And it's descriptive because it is, it's a word that means staff, mate. Mate in the Hebrew means staff, rod, but it also means Tribe. Rod, or staff, or tribe, and that's how it's used back in Numbers chapter 1, verse 4. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each mate, a man of each staff, each rod, each one of his father's household. The implication is that the rod, or the staff, of a tribal leader was a symbol of his authority over the tribe, which is also mate, staff, tribe, the leader, Numbers chapter 1, verse 21 says, There numbered men of the tribe of Reuben. That's the staff of Reuben. If you read through every single man named there, it says of the tribe of, and the word is mate, meaning the staff, meaning the position of authority. The staff or rod was a sign of ancient authority. I mean, going back at least 400 years before this, where old Jacob, leaned on his staff, and and he said to his sons there before his death, Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, which means him whose right it is, the right to rule, until the one with the right to rule comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. And now, here in our story before us, the rod is the perfect emblem for this traveling people. Think about that. Not only is it a a symbol of authority for for the, the tribe, but it's also what each tribal leader would use to lead the tribe through the wilderness as they were walking with the rod, the staff. Because so far, this has been the target of their defiance. The target is a disrespect and a defiance of godly authority, the staff. Here's what happened. Back in chapter 16, verses 1 through 35, we studied on Wednesday night Korah's rebellion. Korah and his cronies, Dathan and Aviram, led a rebellion among all of the tribal leaders. And Korah and his buds were literally swallowed by the earth. And the Lord literally sent out fire and fried 250 men of renown. That's how chapter 16 begins. And then the chapter ends, verses 41 through 50, the very next day, with all the people gathering against Moses and Aaron in defiance again. Unbelievable. So God struck them with a plague that left 14,700 people dead instantly. It only stopped when Aaron rushed in and began to pray and intercede for the people. Then the plague was checked. Brothers and sisters, rebellion will ruin a people. Defiance is death to a nation. But of course, rioters don't ever act with any sense or reason, do they? We're watching rebellion. We're seeing defiance in this nation. And the thing that should be so disconcerting is this is what destroys a people. And it's a fitting commentary, the story where we're at this morning, for our national experience, as it seems like there are those who want to take this country back into a vast wasteland. So the Lord comes along with a beautiful way to prove that Aaron is, in fact, his high priest, that he is chosen by God, that he is their divinely decided mediator. God's plan, watch this, verse 5. It will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. (laughs) Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. So the Lord tells Moses, remember this is mostly how it happened. God speaks to Moses and then Moses speaks to the people. So they're not hearing directly from the Lord. They're hearing from the Lord's mediator, the Lord's man. And then they have to choose to believe whether or not they think the Lord really spoke to Moses. Well, Moses therefore spoke, verse 6, to the sons of Israel and all their leaders. And they gave him a rod apiece for each leader according to their father's households. Twelve rods with the rod of Aaron among their rods. So Moses deposited the rods before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. Thirteen rods laid out there before the veil. In the holy place. These are 13 rods, again, that were staffs of tribal authority. Probably for decades, but we know for at least the past two years. They're hiking poles. They're walking sticks in the wilderness for their long journey. Now think about that. Do you have a walking stick at home? My son David loves to pick them up. He stacks them up by the front door. It's a lovely little display there as you come over to my house. Sticks from all over the yard. And he likes to find the perfect one to walk with. These sticks, as as Moses lays down these 13 rods, and as the tribal leaders bring in these 13 rods, understand what they are bringing. Old, dead, dry, lifeless sticks of wood. Wood on its way to being petrified. It's not like something fresh off the tree. And it's not like anything like this had ever happened before. They're walking along and someone goes, Oh, a bud. These are dead, dry sticks laid out before the Lord. Verse 8. Now, on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Life in the sticks. There it is, overnight. Now, this is, this is absolutely remarkable. And if you've heard the story before, and you go, oh yeah, Aaron's rod the budded. So, whoa, listen, pay attention. This not only had a few weird little buds on it, it's got blossoms. It's got ripe almonds growing all over it. It has fruited overnight. And you botanists ought to know this kind of thing just doesn't happen. This never happens, in fact, even on the branches of a live almond tree, this never happens. What do you mean? Green buds, white blossoms, and fruit encased almonds never appear at the same time. They grow in process, the buds come out then they flower into these beautiful white flowers that cover the tree, and then the flowers fall off and the fruit appears. That's the order of things. That's the way it naturally happens. But in this case, Aaron's rod has all of it on there at the same time, all three stages of growth. And with all three stages of growth present, here's the thing. No one could claim that Moses just crept in during the night to replace Aaron's rod with a common branch from an almond tree. If he had, the branch might have had almonds on it, depending on the time of year. Could have had blossoms on it. Could have had buds on it. It would not have had all three all over it. This was a clearly divine miracle. Verse 9. Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked. And each man took his rod. And I can just see it. The 12 leaders slouching away, dragging their dead, dry, boring sticks while Aaron's staff was just bursting with new, vibrant life. Verse 10. But the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. Verse 11. Thus Moses did, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Put the rod back before the testimony. Again, that's in front of the ark bearing or holding, containing the Ten Commandments, which are the testimony. So he lays that rod down there, and he's told that's where it needs to stay. You know what else was there? The jar of manna. Jar of manna, the rod, put that there, keep it there. And the Hebrew pastor actually confirms that it was eventually kept inside the ark. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, the Ark of the Covenant was covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the table, tables of the covenant. That was all put in there and kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. Why? All three of these things held in the golden box were, as verse 10 describes, signs against the rebels. Symbols, if you will, of their rebellion, of their failure, their failure to keep the law, their grumbling over the manna, and their rebellion that led to the staff of Aaron blossoming and budding and fruiting as it did. All there in the box, (laughs) but kept under mercy. Hold that thought. Let's ask a question this morning, because there's the story before us, and it seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward, pretty supernatural. But why almonds? Why almonds? Why not a branch of a fig tree? Or, or a date palm? Or perhaps a grape cluster like they just brought back from the land? All these point to Israel prophetically, but here we have Aaron's rod bursting like the, with the buds and blossoms and fruit of the almond tree. Why an almond? I suggest to you some things. First off, in the Middle East, almonds were highly prized. Very, very valuable for, for food and for, for taking in uh, Genesis 43, 11. You may recall that old Jacob, when he sent his sons back into Egypt to speak with Joseph, who they didn't know yet was Joseph, he sent him down and he said, if it must be so, do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags. Carry down to the man as a present, a little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachios, nuts, and, and almonds. Take almonds down to him. By the way, almonds aren't nuts. You know that. They're not nuts. They're actually the inner seed of what's called the droop (laughs) or the pit of the almond fruit. The almond fruit is itself a fleshy kind of gelatinous fruit that, that hardens over time. And it has a fuzzy greenish gray outer skin. That all gets really hard. And then that's cracked open. And what's inside is the almond that we eat. This is from the peaches and the prunes family, so it gives you a picture there like a peach. Think about that. But inside that hardened fruit is the almond, which is actually a seed. So when you're eating almonds, you're eating seeds. Be careful, you might have a tree pop up inside your stomach. (laughs) Almonds were highly prized. Secondly, the white blossoms of the almond tree hint at purity. I'll never forget Moses. Cheryl and I, Cheryl and Moses, I guess that works in my life. I don't forget that. Cheryl and I went to see Shiloh in Israel the very first time we went. And we were walking along a path to get to where um, the, the ark, the, the tabernacle actually was kept for many, many years. And as we were walking there, we passed by a, an entire grove of almond trees. And at that time of year, early, it was flowered it was absolutely beautiful these white blossoms just all over the place on these trees so i get this picture of these beautiful white blossoms well they're a hint of purity in the scriptures white points to reminds us of purity now let me speak to something because i think it's pertinent right now in our culture white people aren't pure (laughs) let's be clear on that no people are pure it's funny, I'd had conversations with my, with my children, Anna Marie, Naomi, and David, and they'd, say, they'd tell me, Dad, you're not white. And I'm like, I know. And they're like, you're peach. <laughs> not sure I like that any better. You know, I may be a little pasty, but I'm hardly white, and I'm really, really tired of people making superficial skin color an issue of division. We all bleed red, you know, But more than that, more importantly, we have all been given an eternal spirit by the living God that defines us, makes us different than the animal kingdom and yet similar one to another, every human being. And that spirit, that ought to be our concern. We got a country rioting over skin color and politicians using it to undermine people and control people. And the reality is skin color is irrelevant It's the spirit of a man, the spirit of a woman that matters. And that's, by the way, who we go after when we bring the gospel. We're not looking to save a white person or a black person or a yellow person or a red person. We're looking to save a human being who has an eternal spirit. We're looking to see that spirit in eternity with us forever with Jesus. That's the whole point. So when we talk about white in the gospel, man, don't ever align that with flesh. Because flesh is impure, all flesh is impure. But white, that picture of purity. God says, Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. Oh, Revelation 1:14, his head and his hair were white. Like white wool, like snow, that's Jesus. Not because, wow, he looks old and decrepit. No, because he's pure. Revelation 20, verse 11 even says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. I guarantee that throne is perfectly pure, shimmering white. And so the whiteness of these blossoms are a hint of purity. The almonds themselves, highly prized. Number three, the almond tree, interestingly, was, has a holding position. A holding position. What do you mean? It's the first to bear fruit in the Middle East. Almonds are the first fruit. In fact, they even call it the watcher because the almond flowers and then produces fruit first, and they call that fruit the watcher, as if over all the other fruit trees in the Middle East, because that one comes out first. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 11, God gives a little parable, and this makes sense of it now. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah wrote, saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it the almond was a sign called the the watcher. Part of that reason was it's a Hebrew idiom because the word for almond is shaked and the word for watcher is shoked. It's one slight little letter different. Shaked and shoked, almond, watcher, and the Lord uses this wordplay to describe how, listen, how he keeps his eye on his word. Muhammad came along and said, the scriptures are corrupted. So God's giving a new revelation. Joseph Smith said the exact same thing. Oh, the scriptures, we're not saying that God didn't give the word in the Bible, but they became corrupted by man over time. And so he's given now a new revelation to fix the corruption. My friends, God watches over his word. I've said to you before, do we really think that our awesome, omnipotent God can't maintain the integrity of his word across time? If he can't do that, is he God? God. He gives his word. He says, this is it. He closes the door and says, no more revelations. This is my word. And he watches over it to perform it. Isaiah 55, verse 10 For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and of course the rain's coming down right now, isn't it? And do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You know what really makes me excited? When people start listening to the word, dialing into the word, hearing the word of God, and suddenly there's a bud in the heart. It sprouts and it blossoms and it bears fruit and a life is saved. I love seeing that happen. It's happened several times in the last year. You may not even be aware of it. And I praise the Lord for that. So, the almond trees, they had a, a holding position, they hint at purity, they were highly prized. And finally, number four why almonds? Because almond trees, I love this, have a holy place. Almond trees had a holy place. Think about this. Is there somewhere else that we have seen almonds, buds, and blossoms all together at the same time on a branch? Exodus 25, listen to this, verse 32. Three cups shall be shaped like an almond blossom in one one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shall be shaped like, and it says almond blossoms, but the word blossoms isn't there. Let me read it literally. Three cups shall be shaped like almonds in one branch, a bulb and a flower. And three cups shaped like almonds in another branch, a bulb and a flower. For six branches going out from The lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almonds, its bulbs and its flowers. So everything that sprouted on the rod of Aaron was already designed graphically on the golden lampstand in the holy place. Almonds, flowers, blossoms, buds, the whole thing. Highly prized, a hint of purity, a holding position, and a holy place. Now, all of this put together... Sounds wonderfully familiar. Turn in your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, middle of your Bibles. Listen carefully. Watch this. It's a familiar passage, but it was a big aha moment for me this week. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Give you a minute for the rustling to stop. Isaiah 11, verse 1 Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And my friends, I can tell you with absolute assurance this is an almond shoot. It's an almond shoot. Well, how do you know? Because Isaiah 11 is based in the almond patterned lampstand. It's a representation. He speaks of the Spirit of God. Read on, verse two. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Do you see it? This is the Holy Spirit that Isaiah is talking about. And he's saying, the Holy Spirit will be upon, will dwell in Messiah. This, this shoot, this little shoot from the stem of Jesse. So it comes from the line of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. So in David's lineage, this Messiah is going to come out and the Holy Spirit is going to be upon him. And the Holy Spirit is revealed in six branches, branching off with a central shaft of so the Spirit of the Lord And then again, wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and the fear of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord right up the middle. The lampstand portrayed the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about that here before. But read on. Verse 3 says, he, speaking of Messiah, will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. And he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness the belt about his waist. We're talking about King Messiah. And then he continues to talk about King Messiah's kingdom. Verse 6, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. You ever seen that? Not unless the bear is looking at the cow like, burger time, right? It says, their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand over the viper's den. Go ahead, bite me. go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. My friends, if you're concerned about the current rebellions and issues and problems of mankind, just read that verse again. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Everyone's gonna know. This is a perfect, beautiful kingdom that God is bringing through Jesus Christ. It says in verse 10, in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. This is Jesus, the Messiah. You know that, who is both the shoot of Jesse, the shoot of the stem, the shoot of the almond tree, as it were, verse one, and verse 10, he is also the root. He's the shoot and the root. That is, he comes before and he comes after just as jesus said of himself in revelation 22 16 i am the root and the descendant of david he came before he comes after think about this i mean it's so perfect this this is a a dead stick that buds and blossoms and bears fruit and reveals the authority of yahweh Aaron's rod points directly to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Not just in the fact that it it comes to life. I mean, in all of these ways, it comes to life, yes, but look at what it bears. And what does it bear look like? It looks like the lampstand. And what is the lampstand a picture of? The Holy Spirit, Isaiah tells us. It's Christ Jesus, unquestionably. Jesus is the only one who ever came back from the dead by his own power like the rod it's more than a rod that budded the rod that budded and blossomed and fruited well that's a picture of jesus you might say wait a minute you you say that jesus is the only one to come back from the dead by his own power i thought god was the one who raised jesus from the dead oh he did he did Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yes, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Well, someone else might say, hold it, hold it. I thought the Holy Spirit raised Jesus to life. Oh, he did. He did. Verse, uh, Romans 8 verse 11, if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus said, John 10 17, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. John 10 18. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, listen, this is not modalism. Modalism is a a theology that, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all exactly the same, just kind of different aspects of one. That's modalism. That's not biblical. Father is distinct. Son, Jesus Christ, is distinct. The Holy Spirit is distinct, and yet all three function in perfect harmony as one. They are a unity of one, but they are three personalities of the one true God. Are you with me? It's important to understand that, and not to just boil it all down just to one. God is one, but he's three in one. That's the Trinity and so God the Father and God the Son in Jesus Christ and God the Holy Spirit three in one all share equal billing in the resurrection of Jesus all are involved Jesus Christ the living almond branch prized pure positioned as the first fruits the bible calls him who by the way keeps watch over his word he is the word and He's wholly placed, bearing the light of the Holy Spirit. It is a perfect picture of Jesus. And add in that Jesus is the one then who has given all the divine authority. He is the greater high priest of the greater eternal priestly priesthood, Read Hebrews chapter six through nine to understand that better, how Jesus comes along and of the tribe of Judah replaces the Aaronite priesthood of the tribe of Levi. Jesus is the high authority. He is our great high priest. He is the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Uh, Hebrews chapter nine, I'll just read you this much of it. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 24 says, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would suffer or offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have, had to need to, he would have needed to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. Think about that. What, what, what the Hebrew pastor is saying is if, if Jesus was like Aaron, he would have had to go to the cross every time someone sinned. There would have been an annual crucifixion on Yom Kippur. But he has been manifested to put away sin at the consummation of the ages by the sacrifice of himself. Why? Because he's pure. Because he's absolutely perfect. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And in that sacrifice, put away sin... Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without sin. That is without our sin on him because he's already paid it to those who eagerly await him. Jesus, our perfect high priest, the rod which was to symbolize the godly authority that was given to Aaron so they could see it and understand, he's my man. This was God's intention throughout. Jesus is that picture. By the way, how do we know if someone has godly authority today? Because there are still times where where we, if we're not hearing directly from God, we need to listen to those that are hearing directly from God. But that can be real slippery Real tricky, you know over time, and Jesus said false prophets will arise and there've been all kinds of false Christs more and more as we come to the end of the end of the ages. How do you know? How do you trust if they're actually Christ-like? Aaron's rod pictures good spiritual leadership. So this is just kind of a practical side note. Think about it, fruitful seeds and pure white blossoms and fruitful watchers bearing light or plainly spoken, a godly leader is born again, first and foremost, alive again, alive from the dead, filled with the Holy Spirit. A godly leader is a dead stick restored to a living branch. John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Hey, a godly leader is a keeper of the word of God. There's a, Something was shared with me this last week, and I'm trying to figure out how do I say it without throwing someone under the bus. Let's just put it this way. There are pastors that don't believe what they teach. And the moment you find that out, you need to stop listening to that pastor. If, unless, well, yeah, don't listen to him. I was gonna say, unless he's teaching heresy and doesn't believe it, that's okay. But no, that's not okay. <laughs> Track with me here. <laughs> there are pastors who will teach one thing and believe something else. And that's a lack of integrity, folks. It's the Word of God. It is always the Word, the Word, the Word. The Word must be taught. The Word must be watched. The Word must be kept. And if you are tuning into or listening to or following someone who is a teacher of the Word and they are not teaching the Word of God, or you find out they're teaching it but they don't believe it themselves, why would you even go to that church? It's not a true leader. They're going to be pure of heart. Not perfect. I have to throw that in there for myself. They're going to be pure of heart. That is, they're going to be singular in Christ-like purpose. And a godly leader is going to be fruitful. Remember, almonds aren't nuts, which I think is good to know. A godly leader is not a nut. A godly leader, which may cancel me out right there, a godly leader is a seed of the fruit which produces more fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 17, every good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. Said in Matthew 7, verse 20, so then you will know them by their fruits. Measure that. Measure that. And by the way, if you're following a godly leader and it starts to break down or in some area, he's not pure, he's not a keeper of the word, he obviously hasn't been born again, or he's not fruitful, then you need to bring that to him. As a brother or sister to, to the leader. To walk together in this. But Jesus said in John 15:8, My Father is glorified in this that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That means you're not out bearing fruit to prove yourself. That means that as you go, you're going to bear fruit. You will be known as a disciple because that's what disciples do. Disciples are seeds that, that bear fruit. Jesus said in John 15, 16, and I love this, you did not choose me. Do you realize that? Followers of Jesus Christ, you might go, wait a minute, no, I chose him. No, you didn't. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He said, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you to bear fruit. You were my choice. How's that feel, followers of Jesus? To realize that though there was a moment where you thought you were choosing him, it's because he chose you. Because you were already on his radar. And he made that choice of you. And someone says, well, what if he doesn't choose me? Choose him. It's very simple. If you don't think that you're chosen, if you haven't been chosen, then choose him. And guess what? He's already chosen you. That's how it works. I was watching a, um, a, a YouTube channel. I love to watch on music, music and musicians, and, and, and follow, I follow a couple of different uh, channels of guys who describe old music and songs, and, and I was watching an interview with Alice Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious, you know. Father of, of, of what they called shock rock. You know, these horror shows and blood and snakes and, and decapitations on stages. It's just this wild, crazy, insane stuff. And I don't know if you know this, maybe you do. He's a Christian. He wasn't. Well, he was raised in a Baptist home. He left that and by his own words went as far away from that as he possibly could get. But see, he had given his life to Jesus as a teenager. And God doesn't forget that. And Alice Cooper. Talked about the day where he took the crack cocaine that was in his bathroom and flushed it down the toilet and called his estranged wife and said, I'm done, and she said, prove it. And he came back to her, and he gave his life back to the Lord. And for a while there, stopped performing. It was like, well, I can't do, how do I do that? Well, you know what? He still does his shows now as a dramatic performance, and then he concludes his shows with a presentation of the gospel. (laughs) Just kind of wild as he's putting his head back on, you know. But here's the point, here's the point. Listen to interviews with him now. He is clean, he is sober, and he talks about Jesus, and he's not shy to do so. And he is positioned among some messed up people to share Christ. And he said this, and it is absolutely theologically sound. This is a direct quote from Alice Cooper, that great 20th century theologian. He said, You don't accept Jesus. You accept that he has accepted you. Go Alice. (laughs) His name's Vince, by the way. It's not even Alice. That's just kind of the persona. Anyway, Galatians chapter five, verse 28, tells us the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Against such things, Paul says, there's no law. That's not stuff of the law, my friends. That is the stuff of grace. That is the stuff of Jesus Christ in a life budding and blossoming and fruiting. The fruit of the Spirit. So you want to test out. You want to look at whether or not someone's a godly leader. And I'm not saying whether or not you agree with someone who's leading. I'm saying if you want to see if they are a godly leader, that God has chosen that person in that place in that time You've got a very clear measure. Just look at the stick. Check out the rod. Is it budding? Is it blossoming? Is it fruiting? If not, you need to go talk to that leader. I'm going on vacation, so I can say that right now. (laughs) But wait, wait. We began with the end of the story with the final two verses cried out in despair. You would think in this moment they'd see this this branch and go, wow, it's a supernatural miracle. Aaron, Aaron, he's our man. But instead, the sons of Israel spoke to Moses saying, behold, we perish, we're dying, we're all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? And I think, shouldn't these verses have come at the beginning of the story? You know, the plague, 14,700 dead, and then Aaron prays, and the plague is checked, and then the people cry out, we're dying, we're dying, oh, we perish. But no, this is now after the proof in the rod of Aaron. The people are still distraught. Why? Because death by defiance always leaves people unsettled. I don't even know if they're done burying the 14,700 yet. Death was in the camp. Even as life sprung forth from that dry stick, death was around the camp, leaving people unsettled and uncertain and unsure of their own future. And you know what? We look around and we see riots and we see rebellions and we see death and we know sin kills. So, what do human beings do in this vast wasteland surrounded by death? What do we do? We, we lean on all kinds of crutches. We have the crutch of relationships. maybe a, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, someone you think this is the person. and then when they don't work out, well, maybe this is the person trading in one rod for another, they're still dry sticks, careers this this'll this'll. This will give me some fulfillment, some satisfaction. This career that I'm building and, and establishing, that's, that's the thing. Business, philanthropic, political causes, hey, I'll find my meaning in that. Even ministries and missions can be crutches that we lean on. The problem is they are all dry sticks that eventually will bend, bend and, and they'll crack and they'll break. You can only walk so far some call Christianity a crutch. I know you've heard that one. That's that's actually really old. If I hear that today, I'm like, wow, you are irrelevant and out of date. <laughs> they were saying that back in the 50s and 60s. Come on. Christianity's a crutch. You know what it is? It is if it's more about the yanity than it is the Christ. If church and, and the Bible become well, if they're no more than a social paradigm or, or a lifestyle choice for you, if as Jesus said, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yes, it's a crutch. It was a crutch for the Pharisees. Hey, this is about life. This is about moral teachings. This is about us as the people of Israel. God gave it to us, and so we do these things and show ourselves to be holy people of God, and it was a crutch. Jesus says it's these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me, to me, to me, Jesus says. Listen to him again. You were unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. Jesus Christ is himself no crutch. He's the rod that budded and bloomed and bears fruit. That's Jesus. He's the staff that then leads us out of the vast wilderness of sin and death. Even though I walk through the valley of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Hey, Jesus is the rod, he is the staff, and he is the good shepherd. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. I, I just love this that the people are crying out, death, despair, all around them. And God's like, But I've just given you a staff of life to lead you out of this place of death, out of this vast wasteland of sin. I will lead, See, understand this was God's intention all along, this was his planned purpose. He always intended to get them from Egypt into the promised land. Oh, there would be twists and turns along the way and the journey would be extended for their own good. But it has always been his intent to get them into the promised land. And that's why he gave them a mediator, a staff to lead them, living, filled with the Spirit of God, pure. The staff that they could follow. And by the way, in the world today, he has taken a vast wasteland of human lives and turned them into resurrected saints. Isn't that marvelous? What are you saying, Rick, that I was a dead stick? Yes! (laughs) But you are alive in Jesus Christ if you believe in him. And by the way, he's also going to very soon take the wilderness of this world and turn it into his glorious kingdom, a kingdom that will never fail. We're just seeing patterns and types of this ahead of time with Israel. And by the way, as resurrected saints, we're his body. You know what that means? Buds, blossoms, and fruitful seeds. Huh? All kinds of stages of growth are in this living body, there are little buds. They need to be encouraged and and watered and and cared for and tended. And there are blossoms that are beautiful, but they, they need to be encouraged forward as well. And there are those fruitful seeds, all of us together alive in Christ by his mercy and his grace. What a picture he's given us. And again, where was Aaron's rod kept? In the ark. The ark itself. A picture of Jesus, Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And on top of the ark, the mercy seat. Paul says in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing, by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hey, bud. Hey, blossoms. Hey, fruitful seeds. The whole thing is about God's desire to lead anyone who will follow him out of this vast wasteland. And it doesn't, matter if you feel as dead as a stick he's dealt with that before <laughs> doesn't matter if you feel as wrecked as the ss minnow he knows and if god can give life to a stick of wood if jesus can raise himself from the dead he can revive you here today wherever you're at romans eight ten. if christ is in you though the body is dead because of sin yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Father, what good news, what encouragement in the midst of death and riots and rebellions, even in our world today, this vast wasteland that we're seeing in our country. You are the one who gives life, who breathes new life. Father, I believe there are some among us today, believers, followers of Jesus, who feel like they're drying up, who are tired and, and Lord, wiped out, who feel wrecked on the issues of life. And I pray today, revive, oh, revive us, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, by your spirit. May the bud blossom, may the blossom bear fruit. And Father, there are those who, as of right now, are nothing more than dead sticks, dead people walking, people for whom the grave seems a finality. And I pray today, Lord, if there's anyone listening to this, that they will find life in you, that they will recognize, that they will realize, Father, that they are chosen by Christ and then choose him. We thank you so much for your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.